Good morning. It is a tremendous joy to be with you all. Oh, I'm going to lean on this. That's a, let me not do that. Uh, it's, a, it's a joy to be with you all and to have the opportunity to teach God's word. Uh, it is wonderful to see dear saints we've got to walk with in the past and new friends that we've been able to develop a relationship with and to meet new part of God's family uh, for the first time. But it is just an honor to be with you and to specifically get to do this for you. I do invite you to join me in a time of prayer <clears throat> so that we might ask God to bless our time and build us all up in it. Uh, please pray along with me. <clears throat> oh, dear Lord, we do pray that you would help us. We confess we need help. And we confess you have all the help we need. Speak to us, Lord. Feed us with the food that's needful. It is the spirit that gives life. We know the flesh is no help at all. So we ask that you would help us by your spirit, by your word. Oh, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, please open to the book of Psalms. We're going to be at Psalm 131. <clears throat> if you're wondering about the towel, I don't intend to do aerobics. I just sweat pretty heavily. <clears throat> Larry was like, I got you. Um, Psalm 1, 31. Uh, question for us this morning. <clears throat> what do you do when you're overwhelmed? Before we get into that, let's have a quick humility check. Raise your hand if you've ever been overwhelmed. <laughs> Just look around. Everyone's hands up is telling the truth. Everyone who's not is not. Uh, <clears throat> If you ever read something in God's word that was hard, either to understand or to live out or to accept, raise your hand for that one. Again, look around. What do you do with all of that? <clears throat> what do you do when you're overwhelmed? What do you do when you struggle with life being too much for you? What do you do when you are tempted with anxiety and stress or when you've lost sleep because of your own fretting? We know that we can bring it to the Lord in prayer, and sometimes we don't, right? Uh, what do you do when the problems of the world seem completely overwhelming to you, and you feel helpless to change anything about it? Where do you turn under trials? What do you do when you get in those tough doctrinal positions, and it perplexes your mind and frustrates your soul? What do you do when you're struggling and confused by how God is using his sovereign control or when there's a particular providence of God that is perplexing you to discouragement? What do you do when you're there? Well, I'd like to recommend that you go here. Psalm 131. It carries truth that is guaranteed to give you rest both now and forevermore. The cross, as we know and as we've sung about, as we've heard prayed, is the path of a pilgrim. The, the cross-shaped life is the life all disciples have. Jesus said, take up a cross and follow me. There's no other way to follow King Jesus. This psalm, though, gives attention not to the path of the pilgrim, but the posture the pilgrim is to have on that path. Uh, the posture that we as God's people ought to have in following Christ. We know we are following Christ, but there's a way where to follow Christ. And so I would invite you to come with me to the soul chiropractor this morning. Uh, let's get our posture as pilgrims realigned so that we all might enjoy the blessed calm uh, the profound peace that the saints are intended to know, that soul quietness and contentedness that comes with closeness to the Lord as we trust in him. 
We are the saints of God. We are those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. We are those who possess the promise to enter into his glory, to spend forever with him where he is. We will get to dwell in Emmanuel's land with the king of glory himself, free from every sin, every burden, restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established everlastingly. Saints, the amen. That Y'all can do that as much as you want, by the way. I will not be discouraged. I will only be encouraged. That that we just reflected on, that deliverance in Christ is where we are all headed as his people. That's not where everyone's headed. That's where we as his people are headed. But though that's where we're headed, that's not where we're currently at. Which is why the Bible calls us pilgrims. Sojourners, exiles, strangers in the land. For our true citizenship ain't America. Ain't no other nation on the earth either. Our true citizenship is in heaven. And we are awaiting the city that is yet to come. And so to serve us on our pilgrimage to heaven, we're going to look at Psalm 131, for it's a psalm that calls God's people to trust him. It's not primarily focused at the unbeliever, though there will be a word for you today. If you're here and you don't know the Lord, the the application point, the main thing for you is to trust the Lord, to put your hope in the Lord. Every other hope puts to shame. Hope in the Lord never puts to shame, though. But it's important you understand this is specifically calling to the people of God to hope in the Lord. You say, but I already do that. It's like, do you know? We hope in the Lord, and we need to be called to hope in the Lord. We trust in the Lord. We need to be exhorted to trust in the Lord. And that's what this song is. So without further introduction, let's read Psalm 131 and do know that this is the best part of the sermon. Please hear the word of the Lord. Song of Ascents of David. O Lord. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth. And forevermore. Dear saints, this is God's word. Thanks be to God. And may he give us a blessing in the hearing and in the doing of it. Uh, You might notice the inscription of this psalm is a song of ascent written by David. That is David, the shepherd king of Israel. Uh, The songs of ascent are found in the psalm book beginning at Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And while it's unknown what the exact inscription means, Songs of Ascent, it's generally held to by commentators that these were pilgrim songs, songs that the people of God would sing as they went up to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. Now, you would go up to Jerusalem both literally and figuratively, literally in that the elevation of Jerusalem was on a mountain, but also figuratively in that it was the city of the Most High God. So it was understood that anytime you were going to Jerusalem, even if you were headed south, you were still going up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Thus the ascent, to ascend, right, meaning to go up. In fact, this kind of pilgrimage is what we see in the life of the Lord Jesus when he was young in the temple sharing his insights. So in Luke chapter 2, verse 41 through 42, Uh, The word of God says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Again, these are the songs of going up, the songs of ascent. They'd be songs the saints would sing as they went up to Jerusalem, as they were going to worship the Lord. As pilgrims, we are all perpetually wearied by the journey, weighted down with sins, And in this song, we find a recipe for rest. 
This psalm provides us with a pattern for imitation so that we might know the calm of contentment as sojourners and pilgrims in a world that is deeply affected by brokenness, fallenness, and sin. Uh, it, It helps us and enables us to more deeply and meaningfully and unendingly keep singing, regardless of circumstances or situations, it is well with my soul. We can sing that in mountaintops. We can sing that in the valleys of death because of who our God is. Dear saints, this psalm teaches us all how to hope in the Lord as we live as pilgrims in our day. We are headed up to glory. We are going up in the truest sense. And yet we had not yet arrived. We are still pilgrims, and so it's fitting for us to sing a pilgrim song. So let us consider the contents of this psalm that we might be taught by the Lord in this important aspect of contentment, and we have need to be taught by the Lord in everything. I have two points considering this psalm. Point number one is to resolve to humble yourself. That is resolve to humble yourself. The second point is to resolve to trust the Lord. Resolve to trust the Lord. Resolve to humble yourself and resolve to trust the Lord. Uh, We'll begin with the first one. Again, this is the recipe for rest. This is the commitment for contentment. Humble yourselves. The key to contentment, and by contentment we mean that deep-seated satisfaction and peace of soul, the secret to contentment is humility. The key to contentment in the Lord is humility. It is not the absence of trials that brings us rest. It is not the absence of hardship that brings quiet to our souls. It is not the absence of affliction that brings calm to our spirits. A huge hindrance to our own experience of God's peace is simply our own lack of humility. This is why the psalmist begins this song, interestingly, I think, by humbling himself. Look at verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. If everyone lived in light of this verse, Twitter wouldn't exist anymore, nor would Facebook. Psalmist begins by saying, I don't do that. My heart's not lifted up. My eyes aren't raised too high. I'm not occupied with things that are beyond me. Dear Saint, much of your life is far above your pay grade. Most of your life is far above your pay grade. Or as they say, where we're at in the D.C. area, you don't have clearance for that. The question is, though, do we know that? Not only do we know that, do we live in light of that? Do we actually say that? King David not only knows that and says that, but is singing that. The saints were singing this truth. This is all above our pay grade. This is all above our pay grade. Whatever melody, insert at will. By not singing this, by not meaning this, this is when we get frustrated with God. When we act like we get what he's doing or that we should get what he's doing, we start making recommendations and revisions and then we get upset that he doesn't accept them, and we forget a very basic point about us being creatures and him being creator, and that is all of this is above our pay grade. Remember, this is King David, ruler of a powerful kingdom, ruler of God's kingdom, owner of all kinds of wealth, and yet he begins with honestly professing how little he knows and how little he controls. It's interesting to me here that as David depicts humility, he does so juxtaposed with and in contrast to these expressions of pride that are listed here. And pride is here described as a preoccupation with desiring great things, having great aims, exercising ourselves to great ends. But we find that the humble person in the humble perspective is concerned with great obedience, I like how one commentator put it. He says, the proud person looks, compares, and competes and is never content. 
The proud person focuses on things too great and too marvelous for them. Make no mistake, they're not too great and too marvelous for God. Nothing is too great or too marvelous for God. They are for us. And what things? There's a bunch of things that are too great and too marvelous for us. But the proud person insists that not be the case. They insist that they should be able to understand and know those things, those God things. They reject the category of God things. But many people who reject the Lord, they do so precisely because They don't understand his ways and his thoughts, and they assume they should be able to. Faith is not contingent on us figuring everything out. Faith is us relying on the fact that the Lord already has. We see the psalmist, King David, doing something very different than the proud here. He humbles himself. In fact, that is the only way to do what one commentator said was the whole point of this psalm, and that is to learn to live with unanswerable questions. Friends, that's the Christian life right there, is it not? Learning to live with joy and peace in the Lord with unanswerable questions. We can ask why an unlimited amount of times about any number of circumstances we find ourselves in. Sorrows and sicknesses, sudden or painful losses, hardships and hindrances, perhaps tough theological or doctrinal questions. Beloved, life is filled with unanswerable questions. And the proud demand answers. They demand answers they themselves approve of, and in that, they presume upon their ability to fathom and understand the mind of God. But that is not what the humble do. The humble rest and rejoice that the Lord knows, and the Lord does what's best. Faith and humility sound like what we read even earlier. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his judgments. How unsearchable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has been given a gift to him that he might be repaid for? From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You get to a tough point in the word and you, You start inserting bad motives of God. We should say, who's known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor? You want God to do something for you, and it's a good thing you want him to do for you, but he doesn't do it. He, in fact, seems to do the opposite. You say, well, what's up with that, God? And you start now undoing the goodness of God because you're not getting your way in this particularly good thing. When, When humility says, you owe me nothing. Have I given a gift to you that I should be repaid? The proud exalt themselves to being like God in their comprehension. Their hearts are lifted up in pride. Their eyes are raised way too high for their position. They occupy or involve themselves in things beyond their finite comprehension. And that only brings unrest to the soul as all pride does. There is much you will never understand. That's part of what it means to be a creature. But the psalmist here takes a different posture than the proud. Not the the posture of pride, but the posture of humility. And notice that this is true. It's an honest, it's a sincere posture. He's sincerely humble before the Lord. You know how we can sound humble when we're not being humble. False apologies or you really do want the glory and when somebody gives it to you, like, oh, no, to God. But you really are happy it came to you? This is David talking to the Lord. He's able to say this before the Lord. He's able to say this is his posture to the Lord who knows hearts. Look who the psalmist is addressing in verse 1. He's talking to The Lord, oh Lord. Now these might be things that hypocrites say is true of them before others, but only the truly humble can say it's true of them before the Lord. We must ask ourselves, is this our posture? Is this our practice to humble ourselves before 
the Lord. Listen to a definition of humility. Quote, having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's own importance. End quote. It's to abase or to make oneself low. Not lower than you really are, but low as we actually are. Uh, the distinctly Christian application of this is that we do so in contrast to God. We, we humble ourselves before the Lord. You compare yourself to me, you may have a very big reason to be proud of yourself. But if you compare yourself to the Lord, if we compare ourselves to the Lord, no one stands with a puffed up chest, shoulders wide back before him. No, we humble ourselves before the Lord, and especially in contrast to the Lord, we find that we are indeed of very little significance and a very low estimate. David understood this. David wrote a bunch of songs. We get to hear a lot of how he thought about his relationship to God, one of which is in Psalm 8. You remember how David wrote of himself? Before the Lord in Psalm 8, he said, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, David's like, as I sit back on the bed of my truck at night and I'm looking into the stars and I'm just considering what's happened and who I am, he says, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Interesting, the, the proud in our day say, How, there's a God, why is all this bad stuff happening? David gets why the bad stuff happening, he gets that he's here. We're the source of the bad stuff. He looks at what's happening, he's perplexed that God would be concerned for us at all. And you hear in that, that heart of God being great, and that admission that we are not. And this ought to fall off the lips easily of every saint. We, we come to see who he is. Like Isaiah, we, we come to have an accurate sighting of him. We see him as high and lifted up, as holy, 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 as his glory filling all the earth. We come to see that he is great and we are not. We come to see that he is wise and we are not. We come to see that he is mighty and we are not. We come to see that he is God and we are not. In reflecting on creation, it stirred David to humbling thoughts of himself. And it should stir us to that conclusion as well. But beloved, we have something more intense to reflect on. We have a sight more intense to shrink us down to size. Because we get to look more than just to general creation. We get to look to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For nowhere is this profound truth more perplexingly demonstrated as it is at the cross of Christ. Nowhere do we see God's care for little old us than the cross of Jesus Christ. More humbling than thinking on the galaxy is thinking about Golgotha. There where God showed his love for us in sending his son to suffer for our sins and to taste the bitter and gruesome flavor of death on our behalf. There where for sinners, Jesus experienced the full exquisiteness of the wrath of God that we might know the full redemption of his pardon that we might get full reception into the kingdom and his glory. Where any who are welcome to turn from their sin and believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of King Jesus, and they are promised to be everlastingly saved and made heirs of the kingdom of God. I mean, how humbling is all that? Praise God for the stars. I'm happy there's stars. Praise God for the moon. I'm happy there's a moon. But nothing is more humbling than to consider what God has done in his love for us, what he has done to save us, the depths that Jesus has dove to rescue us, what he himself has emptied to, that we might put on him and know who he is and be with him forever in his glory. When you start with God, you shrink down to an appropriately small and more insignificant size, unless you are being proud. And this is what the psalmist does. He starts with God, and you'll notice the first 
phrase of that psalm is, O Lord. And you see that that L-O-R-D is all capitals. That lets us know that this is not the general word for Lord Adonai. This is the name of God, Yahweh, his covenant name, which his people are to know him by. David looks to the Lord who has been their dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever he had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, he who is God. May we all be truly and sincerely humbled before the Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's the God who watches over all the affairs of men without ever sleeping or slumbering or dozing off. He is the God who governs the direction of history and determines the trajectory of every nation. He sits in the heavens and confounds all his enemies. He cares for all his people. He controls all the elements. He upholds the entire universe by the words of his power. He is intricately involved in overseeing all the minute details in each of our lives. He commands an army of angels. He sustains each of his saints. He listens to every one of our prayers. He catches every tear of ours in his bottle. He answers us all when we call. He carries all of the burdens we bear. He strengthens our hearts in Christ. He raises people from the grave of their sin and works salvation for a countless many. He calls men and women and children to salvation. He calls the living and the dead to judgment through death. He guards all of his elect ones by his own power. He sustains our faith to never fail. He disciplines all of his children in love perfectly. He provides for all of our needs without exception, and he receives all, every saint who has died the sleep of death to be with him and await the resurrection of their bodies, and he does so all without ever leaving or forsaking a single sheep. He is the Lord. Oh, he is the Lord. Now, when you think about the manifold and incalculable works of the Lord, is that not humbling to you? As you start there and you think about what you were so frustrated by and you were so fretting over and you were so anxious with, when you start remembering who he is, does that thing that's causing you to fret not get lighter? Does not help you to remember like, oh, snap, I never knew what I was doing. Say, you never knew what you were doing. Saved people are the only people on the planet who admit that happily. We were off on everything. We were dead off. You were, you were dead wrong. Literally dead wrong. That's how we came to know him. And many, we, I got nothing. I can do nothing. I know nothing. But you helped me to know you. Oh, the text in Jeremiah says, if you're boasting about something, don't boast in the stuff that doesn't matter. You got a couple dollars, don't boast in your dollars. You got a couple degrees, don't boast in your degrees. This is the Brian version. He says, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Not that you understand and know everything. It's that we understand and know him. It's totally fine to say, listen, I don't know. And go to bed. Because the, the, the Bible doesn't say figure everything out. It says believe in him. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Trust his word. Trust his promise. Know he's true. Follow him wholeheartedly. You ain't got to figure everything out. You can't figure everything out. Without a high and exalted view of God, we will have an overly exalted view of ourselves. 
This is where the psalmist starts. He postures himself in humility and he says, I get it, Lord. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. Do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Another commentator has it that the great and wonderful things meant here are God's secret purposes and his sovereign means for their accomplishment in which man is not called to cooperate but to acquiesce. The many things that God does that are beyond our comprehension are not communicated to us so that we can start arguing with God about it, but so that in faith we might accept it all without protest. You can do that. And we have a, a big book filled with every reason to do that. You will not find him wrong a single person. No, not one. You'll never... Catch him dropping a ball. No, not one. You'll never see him forgetting to, oh, I forgot to provide for Jim. It's never happened. I forgot to respond. People might not respond to your text. God never doesn't respond to your prayers. It might be no, and you might think he didn't answer, but he did. We don't register no's as answers. It's an answer. We have every reason in this word to trust him. He's good, he's faithful, he's true, he's righteous, he's loving, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Again, we're not told things in this text so that we might argue with God, but that in faith we might accept it without protest. That's what faith does. It rests in the word of God. The righteous live by faith. In short, the profound and mysterious workings of the will of God are not expected to fully understand, and yet we are expected to fully accept and to trust in. You don't have to know why he commands all that he commands. You just need to be clear he commanded it and trust he has better reasons than you're able to comprehend in doing them. That's a totally legit conclusion. This is what Job And his friends refused to do, happily accept what God was doing. And by not doing that, saints, they only added to their sorrows. They spent 29 chapters pontificating about matters above their pay grade. If Job would have been more humble, and if Job's friends would have been more humble, the 29 chapters a vanity and fallen conjecture could have been replaced by three short verses. Job could have been two chapters long. They just came like, man, this is crazy. This is horrible. Just Let's not set our eyes on things too high. Let's not occupy ourselves with things too marvelous for us. Brother Job, let's, let's just hope in the Lord. But in pride they sin. They refuse to humble themselves. No, no, no. We can figure this out. At the end of chapter 1 of Job and at the end of chapter 2 of Job, as he's trusting in the Lord, we see this phrase about him. In all this, Job did not sin. You see that in chapter 1, verse 22, and chapter 2, verse 10. But that phrase stops in chapter 2. His friends show up. And when his friends show up, they begin to occupy themselves with things too great and too marvelous for them. And in doing so, they sin. Job and all his friends get rebuked except for Elihu, who the Lord uses to humble everybody. And you'll notice that Elihu's whole angle of counsel was not to answer any of the questions. The Lord answered Job from the whirlwind and says, he just asked some questions. Oh, were you there when? Can you do what I do? The whole line of reasoning was, Job, you forgot who was God here. He didn't give him answers to why the suffering happened, why the series of sufferings happened. He just reminded him who he was. Job, I'm the Lord. 
And Job eventually was humbled. And you know what he says at the end of the book? Chapter 42, verse 1 through 3, it says, Then Job answers the Lord and says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for which I did not know. If only Job and Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar reflected on the sentiments of this psalm. I don't know it all. You don't know it all. But let's trust the Lord who does. Let's look to the Lord who does. Hope in the Lord, brother Job. And we'll hope in him with you. In fact, let's sing a song about it, Job. Which is what we have here in this. Dear Saint, there's a lot we don't know, but there's nothing that God doesn't. Just consider how much we would all be helped to daily remember how much we don't know and can't control. And look, failing to do this will empty you of peace. Failing to do this got Job into trouble, got Job's friends into trouble. This gets us all into trouble. This got the disciples into trouble. This is what got Peter into trouble, got rebuked and called Satan. Remember, Jesus was going to the cross, and he told him he was going to the cross, but Peter didn't understand how the plan of God would have a cross in it for the Messiah. He didn't get how the cross was the only way to rescue the people of God fully. He didn't understand how God would work redemption and deliverance and salvation, how Christ would conquer sin and the devil and death for everyone. Peter didn't get it. He was having his mind on something else, and he got rebuked for it. You remember? For setting his mind on the things of man rather than the things of God. Beloved, humility is the only way to contentment in Christ. The most content saints will be the most humble ones. And the most humble ones, the most content. Those who say and they rest and they rejoice in, listen, I don't know it all, but I trust him who does. It's interesting, the first act of the psalmist is to say what he doesn't do and to admit what he doesn't know. We would all be helped to remember this important step. Admit what we can't do and what we don't know. And you will find that's a far longer list than God's. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the righteous man who lives this most fully. No one ever humbled himself more or more fully or more completely trusted his Father's will than the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this was the boast of the Son of God that he completely relied on his Father. In John's Gospel, chapter 12, he says, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father told me. And we can adopt that, but I say what God said. His word is eternal life, so I'm going to say what he said. Oh, Jesus' trust was his glory. He trusted every word his father ever said, and he only spoke what was told him. I mean, even the day of his return, he happily and contentedly rested in its concealment. He says concerning that day, neither the son knows nor even angels in heaven, but the father only. Christ, though in the form of God, emptied himself to become a servant of God, obeying even to the point of death on the cross. And this he did for our salvation. This he did for our honor. This he did for his glory. And this he also did to leave us an example. If you want to know what Psalm 131 looks like, look no further than Jesus Christ. Oh, humble yourself before the Lord. This brings us to our second point, And don't worry, it is shorter. Resolve to trust the Lord. Resolve to trust the Lord. Resolve to trust him as an individual. You resolve to trust the Lord. And joy, resolve to trust him as a congregation. Resolve to trust him as an individual. You see that in verse 2. He says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And you can hear that personal resolve in there. I have calmed and quieted my soul. It is an active effort of worship here. It's not by happenstance. This is something he's doing by faith. The King James says this, I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned. The New American Standard says it, I have certainly soothed and quieted my soul like a weaned child resting against its mother. 
To be a weaned child means that a child is no longer being breastfed, or more accurately, that they were of a full age. They were ripened, as the word suggests. So when we think weaned, we probably, in our context, just think of food, that they no longer need breast milk. But it's more a reference to the stage of a child's life related to their own self-control. I think the picture is very clear. Parenting a newborn is exhausting. And all the new parents said, amen. (laughs) It's exhausting in large part because of how restless newborns are. When they want something, they scream. When they're bothered, they scream. When they don't like something, they scream. That is their one setting. That season of life is largely spent soothing them. And parents do all kinds of crazy stuff to soothe them. Right? There's the dance, right? There's the juggle. Sometimes they put them in a car, driving around blocks, just hoping they get to bed. That season of life is focused on soothing them, providing for them, and soothing them, seeking to train them off of needing that immediate and constant soothing. And they reach a point when they learn to quiet themselves. They learn to stay calm even when they're hungry. They learn to keep quiet even when they're displeased. The psalmist here is saying, I'm like a weaned child with its mother. I've calmed and quieted myself with the Lord. As I hope in the Lord, as I trust in the Lord, as I look to the Lord, I do so calm and quiet in total trust in him. Have you ever seen a child peacefully at rest with their parent? It's beautiful. And contrast that with a child who is kicking and screaming and throwing a fit. One is marked by tranquility. The other is marked by a tantrum. One is calmed and quiet and the other is restless and disturbed. Saint, what kind of child of God are you? How do you handle trials? Are we marked by a calm trust in the Lord? Or by restless worry and distrust? Are you inclined to reflexively say, let me, let me remember what this is. This is above my pay grade. And the Lord is leading me. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even in the valley of shadow of death, I should not fear any evil. The Lord is with me, and his rod and staff is a comfort for me. Well, oftentimes, we're more like the tantrum kids. Like, and we get there super quick. Do we know the peace of God? Do we lean into the peace of God? Do we have a song like this to help our souls, to shape our souls, and to encourage this resolve to be further developed? Do we know the surpassing understanding peace that even in turbulent times, we can be asleep on a boat as the wave is rocking the ship? Or do we just kind of resolve ourselves to throw fits in trials, and know that the Lord will forgive us for it later. We want to be Christians who are marked by a calm trust in the Lord, even as we go through trials. We don't want to be quick to vocalize complaint against the Lord. We want to be quick to recite the name of the Lord and remember what that means. This is the Lord, Yahweh, faithful through the generations, never abandoned a single sheep, and he has no intention to start now. He's the God who promises to cause all things to work together for the good of them who love him, who are called according to their purposes. Even the sufferings that seem heavy are actually light and momentary and are preparing for me an eternal weight of glory. He said so. This is what we're called to be, and we need the Holy Spirit's help. This is why in Romans 15, he says, 
May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you would abound in hope. It is having joy and peace in believing, believing what God said. That is what hope is. Joy and peace. What's the joy and peace in? Knowing he's going to keep his word. He always does. Oh, and the Lord Jesus demonstrates this in the garden for us as well. He demonstrated it in Gethsemane and then again on the cross. You remember in Matthew 26, 38 through 39, he said to them, those disciples, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Which we can, that resonates with us. You've been in some stuff where it's brought you to fall and call out to the Lord, please make this stop. But the Psalm 131 part is the next part he says. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The whole Christian life can be taught from that verse. Nevertheless, ask. ask. It's fine to say, Lord, please get me out of this. That's not dishonoring to the Lord at all. It's dishonoring if you do it with an attitude. But the requesting of itself is not wrong. It's not wrong to say, Lord, can you change this? I know you can you brought it here, can you make it stop? You made the waves crazy, can you calm them down? You brought the sickness to me, can you make it go away? But when he says, my grace is sufficient for you, like the Lord Jesus rests in that, nevertheless, your will is good, acceptable, and perfect. You know what that was when Jesus was doing that? That was Jesus calming and quieting his soul, his sorrowful soul, before his father that he trusted in. He trusted his father's plan. He was strengthened to the finish, and he was eyeing his father's promise. There was joy set before him, as it is for all the people of God. It was what came after the cross that fueled the enduring of the cross, and it's going to be the same for us. That's what hope is. Hope is a confident expectation in what God has promised. Yeah, but this is really, really hard. You remember he said he will make all things new. But this is super, this is super sorrowful. This is really painful for me. I've, I've wept. I've wept. Yes, do you remember he said he will wipe all those tears away? When you experience that sting of death, even though the sting has been removed, when you experience that loss and that suffering, you remember he promised there's a place where there's not mourning or death anymore. You say, oh, but I feel far from him. You're not, first of all. But secondly, one day we will be in his presence in the most bodily experience you could possibly fathom, we'll be satisfied with the fullness of joy. Jesus trusted his Father's plan. He knew his Father's will was good, acceptable, and perfect, and so too should we. We should carry our cup like our Christ. It's fine to say, can I have a different cup, please? But when he doesn't change your cup, Carry it like Christ. This is a good cup for me then. Say, I wonder if there's a confusing providence in your life right now. Just know that you're not supposed to figure it out. It's not there for that. It's there for you to trust him with. God doesn't command us to connect all the dots. He's just promised us that it's all connected. And one day he's going to blow your mind with how connected it all is. Devil thought he was getting Jesus on a cross, y'all. And that's, the, that's how he was disarmed. <laughs> that's how his works got destroyed. <laughs> Yo, we're going to bug out at how elaborately good and perfect his plan is. And we see a little glimpse of that as we read the story of Scripture. 
you like, you, the, the saints begin a little attitude. You're like, yo, bro, in two pages, it's going to flip for you. Chill out. Angels are watching us now like, y'all, what? The grave's empty, y'all. Chill out. We have a friend, his name's Pastor Bobby Scott. He's in California. And uh, he's a dear brother, older man. He's been in ministry for 30-something years. And uh, he, was <clears throat> he was explaining about the sufferings the Lord's brought to him. Uh, he's had his own personal trials just as a believer, as we all do. He had a child with cancer, ministerial war. His house burned down. And when he was reflecting on his own lot, and as it relates to ours, he said, <laughs> it's like his voice, he said, oh, he's, he, he's teaching you to trust him. We had learned through all that God was teaching him to trust him. Why do I have this? He's teaching you to trust him. Why don't I understand this? And I want to understand. He's teaching you to trust him. Why won't he remove this thorn from my flesh? He's teaching you to trust him. He couldn't make it all go. He's God, L-O-R-D, all caps. But he's teaching us to trust him. Peter got sidetracked. He was paying attention to somebody else's life, worried about what the Lord's doing with them. Remember John 21, and he, he was trying to over there look at other people's cups. He was cup comparing, like we sometimes do. Why does it happen to me? Who do you think it should happen to? <laughs> Jesus suffered the wrath of God for you. He's promised you a resurrection. I love D.A. Carson. He says, I'm not suffering from anything that a little resurrection can't fix. But Peter was comparing cups with John, and he's talking to the Lord like, Lord, what's up with him? You remember what Jesus told him? Jesus said to, uh, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, what about this? I love that Peter was so bold to say stuff we all thinking. And so, <clears throat> but we have God's answer recorded for that reason. Peter saw him. He said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What about him? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You trust in me. You hope in me. Listen, we don't get to pick our cups, but we're called to hold our cups just like our Jesus did. And we have encouragement to know how it turned out for him. He who was humbled severely was exalted gloriously and we go through the same process as he was raised from the dead by the glory of the father we too will be raised as well first peter 5 10 we read this earlier after you have suffered a little while the god of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in christ will himself restore confirm strengthen and establish you yeah but you know how much this is that's why it ends with and to him be the dominion forever he can do all the stuff he's promised Resolve to trust him individually. But listen, we don't just do this for ourselves. And the psalmist isn't just doing this for himself. He's giving in this, the, the people of God an example. But again, he's leading the church in this as well. We want to resolve to trust the Lord corporately with others. Look how the psalm ends. Oh, Israel. So it's, oh, Lord. Then it's like, I'm going to call and quiet my soul. And he's like, and the people of God do it too. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Look, we resolve to trust him as individuals and as his collective people. That's what the church is. The church is where the people of God trust the Lord. And we encourage the whole congregation when we do it. Oh, this, this word hope means to wait on. It's to confidently expect what has not yet been realized. It's to believe his word is as full and as promised as he said it is. We do this both with our encouragement and our example. That's what David is doing here. Look, this is a song the saints are singing as they worship. Trusting the Lord is what we do. There's a lot of things we don't do well at. What we're supposed to, the one thing we do as saints is trust God. That's just what it means to be a Christian. Knowing everything is what he does. We trust the Lord. That's what we do. We trust him with everything. We know he's going to work it out. 
And our job is to trust him. This is how you got saved, by coming to trust the Lord. Our sin was not trusting the Lord, not believing the Lord. And that sin brings death. But by Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection, he, he makes us new. And what he converts us into is people who previously did not trust him, who were dead in trust towards him. He makes us alive to now trust the Lord. We now live by the word of God. We now say with Peter, even with a hard word, what else are we going to do? Where else are we going to go? You got the eternal life words. And this is what's happening here. We want to trust him with the whole of our pilgrimage, each step of the way. And, and we ought to be able to sing he's worthy of trusting him. We don't just trust him with our sin debt. We trust him with all of our sanctification. We believe that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. We don't just trust him today. We trust him forevermore. For he is forever trustworthy. And you know who's the best example of this? That's right the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus did among the people of God. This is what he does. The life he lived preached a powerful sermon and was itself a song of praise that says, oh, trust in the Lord. I get that from Hebrews chapter 2. God's word says it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. Behold, I and the children God has given me. So it's pretty dope. That is, that is encouraging. It's pretty encouraging that as Jesus lived among us, <clears throat> through his life and through his lips, he was commending the name of God and testifying praisingly of God's goodness and his trustworthiness. That's one of the things his life is a billboard for, that God's way is perfect. There is no greater testimony any person could have then the Lord Jesus, who is himself the only perfect person, proclaiming in a fallen world, and especially among the people of God, that I will put my trust in him. The most perfect person lived by putting his trust in a perfect God. A perfect Christ put his perfect trust in his perfect father. And that's what he preached through his obedience. I will put my trust in him. That's what he preached by going to the cross and staying on the cross. I will put my trust in him. This is what he preached by awaiting, knowing his father would raise him from the dead. He was preaching, I will put my trust in him. This is what he preached by only saying what God told him to say. I will put my trust in him. And he's, a, he's pictured in that Hebrew text as standing among the people of God, among the congregation, singing the praise of God and calling on the children of God to trust the Lord along with him. He lived a life saying, I will put my trust in him. But he's envisioned, when he's calling people to himself to follow him, he's calling the people of God to come trust the Lord too. That's what you do. With your confusion, you preach and you show and you live and you put your trust in him. That's what you do with your trials. You put your trust in him. That's what you do even if you had a horrible, painful week. You come here and you raise your hands and say, there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. You're putting your trust in him. And that's what we do as a church. We call out to one another through lips and through our lives like Jesus saying, oh, trust in him. Oh, trust in him. I'll put my trust in him. And that's what this psalm ends with. He's saying, oh, Israel, hope in him. Hope in the Lord now and forevermore. What are we going to do next week? We're going to gather again. We're going to call out to each other. We're going to be texting each other throughout the week saying, I will put my trust in him. You put your trust in him. 
Just as the angels cried one to another, the seraphim, holy, 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 the saints cried to one another, oh, trust him, oh, trust him, oh, trust him. And that's what that, that text means, right? Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. This is not only for Israel. We who believe that Christ died for our sins and was raised for our justification, we're who Paul calls the Israel of God. We have every right to apply this to ourselves. And I conclude with the words of the psalm, O Israel of God, hope in the Lord. Oh, dear Lord, I thank you for these saints. We thank you for your word. We thank you for our Jesus. Oh, we pray, Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust him. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Pray, Lord, that you would root us, root us in that resolve to trust him. Pray that you would help us to do what Christ did, even in our deepest affliction, even in our deepest trouble, to know your will is good, acceptable, and perfect. Pray that you would free the saints even today who have come in with cares that they've been tight-fisted with. Oh, would you pry their fingers open in your mercy, cause them to cast their cares on you who care for them, and might they experience the quietness of soul and peace that comes in trusting Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen.